You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Everyone is facing these huge life-changing moments. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. I think it really is important for folks to reach out to people so they can know that they're not alone. We don't know how long all this is going to go on for. And from an emotional standpoint, psychologically, that's a really difficult, difficult thing to grapple with. This is KCBS In-Depth. Community organizers holding a festive get-out-the-vote effort on Election Day this past week just outside a vote center in a predominantly Latino East San Jose neighborhood. Free sandwiches on the food truck. Their goal that day? To encourage Latino residents to vote and to mobilize them behind a range of progressive causes. Latinos don't vote because they might think that the vote doesn't matter, but I think this is one of the ways to make sure that people know that their vote does matter and it does count. But while many were expecting Latino voting preferences to continue tilting to the left this election, the exit polls so far are telling a more complicated story. I'm Keith Manconi. This is KCBS In-Depth, and today in the program, well, election night delivered no shortage of surprises. High on the list for many analysts, though, President Trump's significant gains among Latino voters in key regions throughout the country. We're going to discuss what's behind the shift as well as the shape of politics to come here in California, where Latinos make up the second largest ethnic voting bloc. Joining us for that conversation, we're welcoming onto the program now two close watchers of Latino voting trends. Uh, First up, that would be Mike Madrid. He is a Republican political consultant as well as a partner at Grassroots Lab. Uh, He's also one of the co-founders of The Lincoln Project. It's a political action committee opposing Trump. Mike Madrid, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. Looking forward to it as well. And we are going to welcome on also Gary Segura. He is the dean of the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs and a co-founder of Latino Decisions. That's an opinion research group. Gary Segura, welcome to you as well. It's my pleasure. I'm happy to be here. So let's sketch out what we're talking about when we say the Trump campaign made gains among Latino voters. Nationally, we should point out Biden won the Latino vote almost two to one. So very big margin right there. But based on the figures that have come in so far, uh, it looks like that will actually be a somewhat smaller margin than Hillary Clinton gained back in 2016. So Trump campaign eating into that margin somewhat. Uh, Also important to note, Trump made significant gains in key states, including Texas and Florida. Um, Most remarked upon probably would be the gains in South Florida and Miami-Dade County. Uh, Gary Segura, starting with you, still early days, obviously, but what are your thoughts so far on what's behind the shift? That's right. So not quite sure what to make of that, but I have a couple of theories that, 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 I, that I would want to explore. In Miami-Dade, uh, the biggest new uh, dynamic in Latino politics in South Florida is the impact of the Venezuelans. Um, there's only about 100,000 Venezuelan voters, uh, but they come to the United States with a very strong anti-communist, anti-socialist position since they're largely uh, refugee communities from the Chavez Maduro regime. Um, Over the last several decades, the Cubans have been drifting a little bit in the democratic direction, but the origin of their republicanism is an anti-communist view. And so the Venezuelans come in and they they rev everybody up again on this anti-communism thing. So I think there's a little bit of that, which was facilitated by some Democrats using the term socialism. They clearly don't mean what Nicolas Maduro means, but it it definitely has a negative valence. And so I think there's a little bit of going on there. 
And nationwide, I think the other big problem for Latinos is that Joe Biden was not as well known a quantity as Hillary Clinton was. Um, the Clintons have deep ties to the Latino community. Uh, Vice President Biden does not. And he was really handicapped by the absence of money and the absence of opportunity to campaign between say April 1st and July 1st. Um, so he kind of started out a little bit in a hole. I guess we'll know more as we dig in deeper, but those are the two observations I'd make. And, and very briefly, Gary Segura, uh, do you have the sense that this shift was pivotal in any state uh, at the presidential race or in any uh, significant congressional or Senate races? Uh, it turns out it's probably not a big deal in um, Texas. I think it actually is a big deal in Florida. I think it really helped the Republicans hold on to that state. And I think if the, if the results in Arizona uh, hold up, uh, it's going to make our, the, the lack of a shift among Latinos in Arizona might be key to the Democrats prevailing there. So Latinos were actually pretty in, in, important in a variety of locations and this time for both political parties. All right. Switching back uh, to you, Mike Madrid. Uh, so I, I think that it would be fair to say that uh, Democrats were really counting on Latino voters in a lot of these races and in a lot of these places. Some would say, though, that they were even taking Latinos for granted, taking that Latino vote for granted. What do you see there? Do you think that more outre- outreach should have been made? I don't think there's any question about that. I, I think that, look, Latino turnout for Democratic candidates has largely been anemic, not just in this cycle, but um, in 2016, it was very pronounced, not hitting the turnout goals and modeling that were estimated. Um, So this is a longer term problem for the Democratic Party. Usually there's an over-reliance on uh, the Republican Party being antagonistic and attacking the community, which Republicans can generally be counted on (laughs) for that type of activity to get that sort of uh, boost in turnout. But as, as the demographic grows, as our community grows, I think there's an increasing awareness that there's a lot more of an assimilative, of, uh, an assimilative effect than most people have recognized, and that is there is it's showing up as a movement towards Republicans, especially with U.S.-born Hispanic males. Um, it's very discernible. Uh, polling is showing it. It's been emanating for some time. That movement, that shift is occurring. Um, but as Gary said accurately, there is a geographic component to this. What you're seeing specifically in the Southwest is that Latinos have, uh, where, there's, where there's deeply partisan and politicized um, regional efforts, like we saw in California in the mid-1990s and in Arizona in the 2000s, you see a much lower baseline level of support for Republicans. It generally sits around a 27% range. Uh, that's different. In Texas, there's a little bit more Trumpiness. Um, and, of course, Florida, as was pointed out, is, is a much bigger exception for a whole host of reasons. So we're starting to see uh, not only a regionalization of, of Latino politicization, but as the demographic grows, we're also starting to see regional variations, which I view, frankly, as a very healthy sign for any group of people because they are beginning to take on and, frankly, become part of the dominant um, that take on the political characteristics of, of sort of the, the dominant U.S. political electorate and frankly shape it. And, and obviously, in some point in time, we will become the dominant you know, political voice. Um, we're talking many decades from now, but but this is a traditional trajectory you see uh, from first, second, third generation immigrant groups that come here from other countries. Yeah. Well, sticking with you uh, for one more second, Mike Madrid, I mean, I think one reason that uh, Democrats were likely feeling pretty confident about the Latino vote is over the past few years, we've seen a number of policies that uh, have made 
uh, Latinos turn away from the Trump administration and the Republican Party, uh, statements and policies, that is. Uh, thinking back to uh, during the 2016 campaign, the reference to uh, from Trump to Mexicans as rapists, then going a little bit further, the family separation policy at the border, and uh, then looking at the handling of the coronavirus, uh, many folks uh, feel that uh, the president mishandled that and uh, the consequences of that mishandling were felt disproportionately among uh, the Latino community, who uh, many of whom are from frontline workers. Are, are you surprised at all that th- those sorts of things, uh, those sorts of statements, those sorts of policies uh, didn't blunt Trump's edge here more? Yeah. And again, I think that speaks to the lack of resourcing and the ineffectiveness of some of the messaging that the campaign, the Biden campaign was was executing. It was, it was a problem with the Lincoln Project that we, notif- we noticed in the mid-summer time frame. We worked together with everybody from Bernie Sanders, Latino outreach groups to uh, more nonpartisan, quote unquote, nonpartisan group from from Mi Familia Vota to Unidos U.S. to you know a bunch of people who saw it were very very alarmed by it. By the time we were able to effectuate and in, and resource the programs that we needed to kind of correct it, um, I think the 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 operation was probably a little bit more uh, de minimis than we would have liked. But it, it's clearly not just a problem for this moment in time. As I said, this this goes back certainly to 2016 and even before Trump and before that time, anybody who, who's a political professional knows that there is a gap there. There is a problem there. Traditionally, it manifests itself as lower voter turnout as the Democrats you know, struggle to engage with this community in terms of messaging. Um, it, it, it's got a little bit better, as I, as I mentioned, in, 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 especially in the midterms during the Trump era. But the fact that you're seeing this movement towards Donald Trump um, I think it's I think it's problematic. It may be it may be the sign of a general uh, assimilative tendency. Again, as I was mentioning, which is which is not atypical for all voter groups by the second third generation. But Donald Trump presented a unique opportunity to change this. Um, I, and finally, I do want to say one other thing: is you know the Republicans still lost this vote by sixty five thirty five. You know, best case scenario. That, that's just that's that's horrendous. <laughs> That's not good news for the Republican Party. I mean, they, they may be talking about small marginal movements, but they're losing what is now the second largest racial and ethnic voting group in the country and rapidly growing by extremely wide margins. And there's no, there's no suggestion that they're going to be able to correct that in any meaningful way to help them win elections going forward. All right. A lot of interesting insights right there. We're going to dig in a little bit more in just a second. First, want to remind listeners that you are listening to KCBS In-Depth, a weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today on the program, we're examining the role of Latino voters in the 2020 election as voting trends seem to be shifting. Joining us, we just heard there from Mike Madrid. He's a Republican political consultant and one of the co-founders of the Lincoln Project. Also speaking today with Gary Segura. He's the dean of the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs and a co-founder of Latino Decisions. That's an opinion research group. Uh, Turning back to you, Gary Segura. So we're hearing about uh, assimilation potentially playing a role. We're hearing about the um, uh, geography potentially playing a role. I've also heard some folks talking about educational attainment beginning to be more of a significant predictor of voting trends than race in the sense that uh, President Trump seems to be doing fairly well uh, among those who do not have a college degree and uh, the Democratic Party are doing relatively better among those who do have a college degree. And uh, perhaps what 
what we're seeing is that uh, the educational attainment, uh, we're, we're seeing a lot of commonality among voters of all ethnic backgrounds, uh, really determined by their uh, education rather than other factors. Uh, do you think that there's anything to that idea? Uh, only at the margin, I'm afraid. Uh, so there's no question that educational attainment plays a role. And the place that we most notice this is among white women, where white women with college degrees were majority for um, Vice President Biden and white women without uh, college degrees were majority for President Trump. That said, um, the majority of all white women uh, voted for uh, President Trump and even white women with college degrees were only talking about 55%. Every segment of the Latino electorate with and without college degrees, men and women sit to the left of that number. Uh, and so uh, educational attainment is, is is relevant, but it is not um, necessarily the, the outcome determinant. The other thing to think about here is that educational attainment is going to cut both ways for Latinos. Uh, I find myself agreeing with Mike's observations a minute ago, which is that third and fourth generation folks who become uh, socially mobile have historically been the folks most likely to peel off into um, the Republican Party. By contrast, though, higher educated people tend to vote Democrat. The, the reason that's a problem is that higher education and social mobility are positively correlated. So as people become better educated and have higher incomes, does their education pull them left or does their income pull them right? And I think we have to see how that happens over time. Latinos still only have about 22% of Latino registered voters having a college degree and only 11% of Latinos overall. Um, as those numbers go up, it'll be very interesting to see what happens. All right. So uh, a lot of trends uh, to peel apart right there. I want to bring things a little bit more forward looking. We were hearing from Mike Madrid about the challenges that the uh, GOP is going to have in attracting Latino voters uh, going ahead despite these gains, you know, still losing uh, two to one, the Latino vote this go round. But I think the Democrats had had this idea of demographics as destiny, as the uh, as the U.S. as its demographics change, it's going to gain uh, voters and a solid voting base that is going to be unassailable in the decades to come in the future. Uh, now, if these gains uh, for Republicans among Latino voters, and we also saw gains uh, among African Americans in in some areas, if those gains persist, that would seem to throw some amount of cold water on that idea of demographics as destiny. I'm, I'm curious for both of your thoughts on this. Let's uh, stick with Gary Segura and then go to Mike Madrid. Demographics are definitely not destiny. Um, you can have a, an available population of mobilizable votes, but as Mike pointed out, if you're not spending a lot of money to register those voters, to create uh, messages of co commonality with those voters, to communicate, to engage them both on message and on policy substance, then you don't create voters that are in your column. Uh, so the demographic bomb is one that creates the potential for political change, but it still requires action on the part of the political party that's benefiting. So that's the, that's the throw water on it notion. On the other hand, um, when the votes are fully counted, we'll find out that demographic shifts, notwithstanding even in, the, in this election, Probably nine out of every 10 votes cast for the GOP were cast by whites, and that share of the electorate has dropped to about 65%. And when the census is done this year, it's going to show that the country is about 60% white. Um, as those numbers keep going down, that is a, a death spiral for the GOP, assuming that the Democrats are out there trying to register votes. So yes, demography is not destiny, 
but it sure is a problem when the sole group that you rely on for 90% of your votes is shrinking as a population share. All right, Mike Madrid, your thoughts, demography as destiny. Yeah, I, look, I, I think that's correct. Um, the, the, the problem the Republican Party has is it's no longer trying anymore, right? It's, it's actively running against uh, the fastest growing segment of the electorate. Now, so, so, so yeah, it's, it's, look, it's backed itself up into a, into a demographic cul-de-sac, and, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. Uh, but again, that alone is not going to lead to the destruction of the party or the marginalization or even regionalization of it. It is going to require a better, more active engagement from the Democratic Party. It's not going to just happen on its own. There does have to be resource. Uh, it has to be a resource campaign. There has to be some some nuance and better understanding of the messaging, which is clearly a big part of it. There's a reason why Bernie Sanders did so commandingly, won so commandingly with Latino voters. And, and Biden did, did so anemically in the primaries. Uh, and even in the general, I would suggest that, that Biden wasn't getting the numbers that he needed to do. That's a messaging problem. It's not just a resourcing problem. Um, we had historically high turnout. Okay, so Latinos were turning out, but the break, the break towards Republicans was much greater than it should have been. And I think that it would behoove folks to understand that in many ways, a big resonant part of Bernie Sanders' message was running against the Democratic Party as the establishment. It's not unlike what you saw with Trump and non-college educated whites running against the establishment of the Republican Party. There, we, we need to pay attention to this obvious messaging challenge that's going with, with what is remarkably similar demographic. Um, if we, and if we don't, we, we, you know, the parties, both parties, do so at their own peril. They're saying something very loud and very clearly. The political system is not working for them, and neither party is doing a good job of either meeting and addressing specifically the economic concerns, which Latinos have been telling us for over 30 years is the primary driver of their politicization and political behavior and mobilization. And frankly, it's what, 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 what Latinos overwhelmingly have been looking for for three decades. Neither party is doing that well. And in an environment where there is, is very little happening, perhaps on the Democratic side, as we saw in 2020, you're going to see this Trumpiness emerge and a slight shift over, which is, I think, precisely what we saw. Uh, a, a lot that I would really like to hear uh, a response from uh, Gary Segura in just one second. But real quick, once again, I do want to remind listeners that this is KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi, and today we are talking about political preferences among Latino voters following a surge in support for the GOP candidate. Joining us once again is Mike Madrid, a Republican political consultant, one of the co-founders of the Lincoln Project, as well as Gary Segura. He is the dean of the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs and the co-founder of Latino Decisions. Uh, I want to bring things back into California uh, for just a, a second as uh, we approach the end of our program. Because obviously the the vote base of, of Latinos in California is very large. I'm wondering if we're seeing some of these trends also play out here uh, as well. I, perhaps the, uh, the the exit polling from uh, this round of elections is probably not quite as clear as we would like uh, yet to say anything super definitive about California. But uh, Gary Segura, I'm, I'm wondering what you're seeing in general, uh, the, the general trends of uh, conservative gains. Uh, is there any reason to think that that's happening as well here in California among Latino voters? I have not seen uh, anything in the data reported so far to suggest that there was uh, a drift to the right among California Latinos. Um, if there was, maybe there was at the noise level 1%, 2%, but I don't see it. 
Um, there are some uncalled races in the congressional environment, but most of those are in districts that are uh, very multi-ethnic and it's not clear what's driving the change. As Mike noted, the history of California is one where Latinos um, uh, relationships to the public, to the two political parties are driven by the historical circumstances and actions which have had longstanding impact. Um, and so talking about a particular proposition 187 and back in the 1990s that uh, w- would have cut off uh, public many f- forms of public support to uh, immigrants. That's right. So 187 and really the whole decade. Um, and that has created an environment. And of course, Latinos have reached a level of political power in California that they don't hold in most other states. Right. So the Latino caucus of the state legislature is substantial. Latinos control several of the statewide constitutional offices. Um, That's not to say that there certainly isn't room for improvement, um, but Latino political power has gone well in California, and I don't see a lot of drift away from that. Um, And I'll be interested to hear Mike's uh, take on that, but I I don't see much in the data so far. Yeah, Mike, are you seeing the same thing? Yeah, I think he's exactly right. And again, I think what's happened is Arizona has emulated uh, that same model because Republicans took a very antagonistic approach. political posture against uh, the demographic changes that were happening in that state. I think it's why you're seeing a really close similarity between the way Latinos in Arizona vote and the way California Latinos vote. And, and um, I, I would, I, I think that that really does account for a large part of the variation that we're seeing with some of what's gone on in Texas. Texas has a very deep, long uh, legacy of oppression with Latinos, but uh, nothing that is really um, uh, recent, at least in the minds of people 40 and under, the way Prop 187 and Joe Arpaio and other, you know, Pete Wilson and some of these iconic Republican characters that have really crystallized uh, anti-Latino sentiment in the community. Uh, now, that's not to say that's not coming, right? Texas is very different. When I was doing work in the early 2000s, you had like a George Bush uh, who was very accommodating to the Latino community, and you had a Pete Wilson that was very antagonistic. It was really a study in two contrasts. Texas now, I think, has regressed towards this more California in the 1990s model, and I would expect that this may be this may be one of the high watermarks, at least for the foreseeable future, uh, with what you were seeing with overperformance amongst Latinos for Republicans in the Rio Grande Valley, for example. Yeah. Now, let's let's pick back up on that uh, comment that Mike Madrid made earlier about the difference between, you know, the economic interests of voters and uh, perhaps some of the other uh, social interests of voters. We did see in the California election Proposition uh, 16, uh, the uh, proposition that would bring back affirmative action in California. We saw that go down pretty hard. And uh, some of the polling that I saw among Latino voters is that there was only a 40 percent level of support among Latino voters, even though supporters of the proposition, at least at the UC level, it was a measure largely to bring uh, more Latino students into the UC system. That was one of the the big goals of it. Um, So, Gary Segura, I'm wondering, um, is that a sign that these not exactly economic issues, these more social issues, don't have uh, quite the saliency uh, for Latino voters in California? I'm not sure I'm willing to say that. Um, I don't have a strong sense of Um, the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of the campaigns on either side of Prop 16. I thought that it was a very confusing sort of uh, uh, ballot initiative. So 
it was a ballot initiative which, if adopted, would have undone a ballot initiative that undid affirmative action. <laughs> so the triple negative there became yeah. very difficult for voters to follow. And uh, I, it is it is going down pretty hard, and I'm I'm surprised and personally I'm disappointed to see that. But uh, but it's a really weird structure of a proposition. Yeah, Mike Mike Madrid, would you agree with that? I would agree with that. I, um, but having said that, I do think that there is in the political arena with practitioners, there's probably been too much of an over-reliance on what we would characterize as sort of stereotypical perceptions of what are driving Latino attitudes and Latino behavior. And I think there's a very strong over-reliance on issues which, while very important to our community, uh, issues related to immigration, issues related to affirmative action, going back in history to bilingual education. These are very, very important issues to our community, but they're not central. Central issues are, are just like most mainstream voters, if that's the right terminology, and that's to say it's it's economic issues. And again, the polling data has been telling us this for, for decades now. So I think what, what, what this election really is, is a wake-up call, especially to non-Latino political practitioners to start addressing the community in a more direct way, Latino voters are telling us very directly what they want. They have been for some time, but there's sort of this need to, to, to regress, to say, oh, you know, these, these stereotypical racial or ethnic issues are the primary drivers of this community. They are important to us. There's no question about that. I don't want to, to diminish that at all. But, but the primary drivers of political behavior are not unlike they are with most voter groups. And we have not done a good job on either side of the aisle of characterizing both a policy platform for that or a communications uh, 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 plan uh, that has been effective in, in meeting the needs of Latinos where they're at and what they're saying. Yeah. Well, we only have a couple of minutes left, uh, but I want to give a uh, final closing thoughts to both of you. And uh, Gary Segura, I kind of want to stick on that point, talking about uh, the the different sorts of uh, interests that voters have and uh, what really should be emphasized. Uh, I'll, I'll say that I'm a reporter that spends most of his time in the South Bay of the Bay Area. And so I was out on election night speaking to uh, community organizers in East San Jose, and they were trying to rally Latino voters as well. And they were talking largely about the immigration issues, the uh, anti-Trump issues. They were hitting those issues pretty hard. I heard a lot less about these bread and butter economic paycheck issues. Uh, do you think that, uh, do you agree with Mike Madrid that maybe a, a certain amount of shift is going to be needed for uh, either party to be successful going forward? I do in this instance. Uh, we did uh, a most important issue uh, question in our election eve poll, uh, where we give voters the opportunity to choose as up to three issues that they think Congress and the presidency should deal with. The number one issue across every racial and ethnic group was COVID, COVID, COVID. And for Latinos who face the, the incredible Faustian bargain of either being fired from their job because of layoffs or having to go to their job, which is very high risk because it interacts with the public, uh, the impact of COVID both physically, medically, and economically has been profound. Our number two issue was jobs in the economy, which is very related to the number one issue because of the, the downstream consequences of the pandemic. The number three issue was healthcare costs. So these are very sort of mom and pop kitchen table issues. You know, uh, back when he was the Lieutenant Governor, uh, Lieutenant Governor Bustamante used to say that the Latino agenda is the American agenda. You want jobs, you want quality schools, and in this case, with a COVID epidemic, you want to survive until tomorrow. Yeah. All right. And uh, let's go back to you, Mike Madrid, for closing thoughts. I mean, earlier in this conversation, you were 
Uh, throwing a little bit of cold water on the notion that Republicans stand to make continued gains among Latino voters, although one statistic that a lot of people are pointing to is the fact that uh, the Trump uh, the Trump campaign won a higher share of non-white voters of any Republican campaign uh, since Richard Nixon in 1960. So it does seem like there is some sign of uh, a diversifying voter base there. Uh, just curious for your thoughts as somebody who's been uh, critical of the Trump campaign and uh, wanting to see improvements among the GOP more generally. Do you, do you see that as uh, promising that there are perhaps inroads for the party uh, among a more diverse base? No, I mean, for a couple of reasons. And I also think that comparing 2020 to 1968 uh, is, you know, comparing apples to oranges. The, the size of the Latino electorate and the composition are completely different. You had a very few uh, immigrant uh, first generation voters in the Latino community and really no no scientific data backing that up. But but having said that, look, I have been saying for a very long time that Latinos would take on an assimilative, an assimilative politicized behavior, not unlike what we saw large immigrant groups 100 years ago at Ellis Island uh, undertake. I think that that is happening. It's undeniable. The, the, the community is growing too fast and it's becoming so so large and there are so many intergenerational segments and we have to take into account things like social mobility, country of origin, you know, to, to look at the politicization, but it is happening. That is undeniable. The, the, the other way to look at it, though, um, is to say that the Republican Party is only getting 32, 33 percent, 35 percent, if you want to be very generous, of the second largest ethnic group in America. That's that is devastating. That is not good news. <laughs> that is horrible news. And it's not good for the long term prognosis of the Republican Party. The time when it could have made those shifts was probably 20 years ago when some of these alarm bells were, grow, were, were going off. And I would say that regardless of, 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 of partisanship, I do believe that the party, whether it's the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, the party that is able to capture the hearts and minds and address the economic needs of an aspiring multicultural middle class will be the dominant party for the next generation of Americans. Democrats have that challenge because of the issues matrix within which they're able to talk about manufacturing jobs, for example. Republicans have the opposite problem, which is they're singularly talking to a party identified increasingly with white identity grievance politics. So we'll have to see how this plays out. All right. A lot of really interesting questions and things to look forward to in the elections to come once we dust ourselves off from uh, the one that we just went through. Uh, We have been speaking today to Mike Madrid. He's a Republican political consultant and one of the co-founders of The Lincoln Project. Mike Madrid, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. appreciate it. Also speaking there to Gary Segura. He's the dean of the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs and a co-founder of Latino Decisions. Gary Segura, thank you to you as well. It was my pleasure. And thank you for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe. Be well. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.